Welcome to the fourth in a series of interviews on disinformation and the threat it poses to democracy in the EU. This series is produced by Europe Direct Blanchardstown Library, part of the Fingal network of libraries. In this final interview, I spoke to Dr Eileen Cullity. Dr Cullity is Assistant Professor in the School of Communications at DCU and Vice Chair of Media Literacy Ireland. We discuss the updated EU Code of Practice on Disinformation. Dr. Cullity, thank you for speaking to me today about the EU Code of Practice on Disinformation. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Um, So uh, before we get into the details of this code itself, I, I want to ask you, why do we need a Code of Practice on Disinformation in the first instance? And who is it aimed at? Well, there's been a sense of crisis around disinformation for many years now. So many people will remember the controversies surrounding the 2016 US presidential election and all these claims about uh, Russian interference. And in the EU, they were already monitoring uh, Russian disinformation campaigns, particularly uh, on the eastern border. But we now know that many countries, I think up to about 70 countries, operate those kinds of disinformation campaigns. And then with uh, COVID, we can see all the, the disinformation movement that exists around vaccines, but also in many other areas like climate change, for example. So the code of practice was kind of designed to address that problem by inviting online platforms, so platforms like Google and Facebook, Twitter and so on, to come together and tell the European Commission what are they doing to counteract uh, disinformation. And there's really two important points around disinformation that underpin it. And the first is that disinformation is not illegal. So it's considered harmful, but it is not illegal in most democracies. Some countries have made uh, disinformation illegal and that creates serious issues around freedom of expression and the um, authoritarian decisions about what people can and cannot say. So developing this code of practice as a voluntary way to get platforms to tell the commission what they're doing was one way to address this kind of complicated area of harmful content that's not illegal. And then a second kind of complication is that online platforms, they're not like traditional media. So they're not legally responsible for the content they host. They are responsible if the content is illegal, for example, terrorism content um, and other types of illegal content they have to act on. They're not responsible for everything else. So unlike say the Irish Times or RTE who are held responsible for anything they choose to publish or broadcast, online platforms are not. So that's another reason why a code of practice was one way forward to encourage transparency and this uh, voluntary participation. That's very interesting what you just said, because there is a a real balancing act there, isn't there, between freedom of of expression, but also countering misinformation. And would I be right in saying this is the reason why something like this might not be made compulsory in the EU, because we have to keep that balance? Well, and also it's how do you enforce it? So currently the the members of the the companies that have signed up to the code of practice are the major platforms, so the Googles and the Facebooks. And uh, Twitter and TikTok uh, are also uh, signatories. But if you were to extend that out to every single online publisher, it could include the the library's own website. If it has a comments form, it could include somebody with a blog. And that's just not feasible. So one strategy is to focus on the major uh, players. Okay. And and could you 
Describe maybe, you've already touched on this, but some of the types of disinformation we've seen in EU uh, online platforms in the past few years. Is there any kind of concrete example? You mentioned uh, interference from foreign governments, for example. Yeah, the the big topics really are politics, climate change, uh, healthcare in particular, vaccines, and the the vaccines issue precedes uh, COVID-19. So ahead of the the 2019 European Parliament elections, and that's the code of practice was set up with those elections in mind, a number of uh, researchers uncovered these networks of fake accounts. And the fake accounts work um, in an interesting way. So an account might be set up as, say, a Facebook page dedicated to music, and then it picks up followers, and then it will switch to producing lots of uh, political disinformation. Uh, Here in Ireland, we have many notable examples uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly on Facebook, which has, each platform has its own policies. You know, it's free to decide what's permissible on its platform. Facebook has a policy of not fact-checking political figures. People might remember that from the the US election. So during the Dublin Bay South by-election, one of the candidates was quite a high profile figure in the anti-lockdown movement and was making false claims about vaccines and the amount of people that had died in the EU. And yet for the entire period of the campaign, she could not be fact-checked. So we get these kinds of anomalies and people are probably familiar with those who've gotten involved in conspiracy theories or vaccine groups um, online. And it's worth noting that this type of disinformation, it's not new. Politicians have always lied. People have always subscribed to various conspiracy theories. But what's new with the online platforms is just how fast and how far these false claims uh, can spread. And that's really concerning going into the future as we're going to tackle big issues uh, like climate change. When you think about all the vested interests that are involved there and that have the resources and capacity to run very sophisticated uh, disinformation campaigns. Absolutely. And, and just the current code of practice that you alluded to already, you, you mentioned that the, the, the last European election something, you know, was brought in with that in mind. So the current code of practice is, is voluntary or self-regulatory mechanism. Could you explain exactly how that works? Sure. So any uh, self-regulated industry sets its own codes for its members to comply with. And there's no legal basis uh, to enforce those. And many industries, particularly in the media, are regulated this way. So, for example, the Irish newspaper industry is self-regulated by the Press Council of Ireland. So the Press Council defines a code of practice and says all of the news media who are members must follow that code of practice. Members of the public, if they have a complaint, can go to the Press Council and they hear it. The advertising industry works um, exactly the same. And there's two major benefits to that self-regulation. One, because we're dealing with content, it keeps the state out of those decisions about what is permissible. So it's that freedom of expression issue. And the second is that it frees up the courts and it means that people don't have to get involved in legal proceedings. So there's a direct benefit for the consumers who might want to complain, but also for the the industry itself. And there's an incentive, particularly for the news industry, to, to comply with that model. So the, this type of self-regulation applies to the, the code because, as I said, the platforms are, are not legally obliged to take down uh, disinformation. I think a key difference would be where the news industry might have an incentive to comply with the code. There isn't the same incentive 
to do anything with the code of practice. And there's no equivalent of the Press Council of Ireland to actually ensure that any of the platforms are doing the things they said they would do under the code. So what we get in the end are a group of technology companies who produce these reports saying we did X, Y, and Z on this information, but it's very difficult to know whether they actually did those things or whether those things are effective. And that's the, the weakness of the self-regulation. Okay, and that's something I will come back to. And you, you already mentioned a few well-known social media platforms. So who would have signed up to these voluntary regulatory standards? And, and were there many companies or platforms that did not sign up? Well, in uh, 2018, the, the main technology companies were uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and then Microsoft joined, uh, and Mozilla, and last year, TikTok also joined. There are also some major advertising companies or advertising associations. Now with, say, I think maybe some people mightn't be aware, but when we say Google is a signatory, you know, that means YouTube is a signatory because Google owns YouTube. Facebook is a signatory, that means Instagram and WhatsApp are signatories because Facebook owns uh, both of those. What's missing, though, are maybe some of the newer platforms that are becoming more uh, popular. So people may have heard of platforms like um, Telegram or Gab, and a lot of disinformation has migrated from, say, YouTube and Facebook to those platforms where they operate quite strict free speech policies. So they, they're not very interested in moderating content at all, and therefore very unlikely to voluntarily sign up to uh, a code of practice. Okay, and, and there's obviously no obligation for them to sign up to this. So, you know, that, that is one of, as you said, one of the weaknesses there that certain platforms, as you mentioned, the likes of Telegram may not wish to sign up to this. So, I mean, up until now, the, the voluntary standards and voluntary code, has it actually been effective? Well, I think you could say it was effective. It was probably an achievement in the first place to get these companies to uh, come together and agree that they should be reporting and that they should be accountable to somebody. So other people might say that that's a pretty low bar. There have been assessments of these reports. So I should explain that what it really means is that the code of practice identified key areas like increasing transparency around political advertising, revealing how many disinformation networks have been taken down, providing funding for media literacy and fact checkers and things like that. So that's what they were asked to do. And then they produce reports that are published on the European Commission website where they just state and outline all the things they have done in those areas. There have been assessments of those reports. We've uh, undertaken three pieces of research on the reports in DCU. And really, yes, you can say things have been achieved, for example, Ahead of those 2019 European elections, the platforms created a public library of all of the political adverts that were put there. So transparency did increase. But beyond that, much of the detail of the information they provide is so limited, you can't do anything with it. For example, um, if they're reporting how much money was spent on a political advert, it's reported in very broad bands from maybe 500 to 2,000, that's not very revealing. Or if they say who was targeted by ads, it's generic categories. When we know that if you were buying an ad, you could target people very, very specifically based on their their interests. And with the uh, recent COVID-19 reports, which is what we've uh, just researched in DCU, 
you know, it's easy to say that you put a label on every piece of content about COVID-19, but where's the evidence that that actually happened? And the commission obviously is interested in Europe. A lot of the reports provide almost no data about Europe at all, not broken down by country. So we can't say what was done in Ireland versus what was done in Germany and things like that. So no, it hasn't, it hasn't lived up to, I think, the expectations of what it might achieve. So and so now we're moving towards a, a new, I suppose, updated EU uh, code of practice. And what does this new updated code cover? What will change, well, basically? In part because there have been these official reviews that identified all these weaknesses in the code. And in particular around the lack of clear data, um, the lack of what they call key performance indicators. So how do you know that somebody is actually making any progress? There's no way of telling that in the current code. So the revised code is going to come up with uh, new criteria around these, but it's also part of a new piece of uh, European legislation called the Digital Services Act. So back in the year 2000, the EU had the e-commerce directive, which was going to regulate the digital economy in Europe. And 20 years later, that is obviously in great need of updating. And the result is this Digital Services Act. So there's a very important point that happened with the regulation or lack of regulation on digital technologies back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was that it was decided that online platforms were not liable for any of the content they host. And there was this big expectation that that might be reversed with the Digital Services Act, but it wasn't. So they remain immune from the, the content they host. So then the question is, is how is the Digital Services Act actually going to force these platforms to do something more beyond asking them to participate in uh, self-regulation? Okay, and, and it's moving from what's called a voluntary to a co-regulatory instrument. What, what does that mean exactly? Or what's the expectation there? Well, co-regulation is, uh, say, a medium point between an entirely self-regulated industry and one where there is some uh, sanctions. But still the participation, as far as I understand, would be voluntary. So it's more like there could be sanctions if platforms are not complying with the things they said they would, but you still can't compel them to participate. There's, there's a lot of uh, confusion or lack of clarity at the moment around how the Digital Services Act and the revised code will be implemented because the debates um, are still ongoing. One thing the Digital Services Act does focus on in particular are what it calls you know, very large platforms. So it's focusing on the Googles and the Facebooks, but it's not saying that those rules would apply to smaller platforms. And, and some of those smaller ones are getting a little bit more traction now in, in certain certain areas, let's say. You, you see a migration, I think, from some of the mainstream platforms to these smaller ones where there's maybe more extreme views being expressed. You, you've seen it in, in, I mean, in America it's happened. Um, and, you know, is this something that's beginning to creep into Europe as well? Yeah, many of the platforms um, are based in the, in the US, um, although the Telegram uh, came from Russia originally. Okay. I think there's just a natural reaction to the fact that the bigger platforms are stepping up their moderation. They're playing a bigger role in the content on their platforms than for some people, they're naturally going to, to move away from that. Uh, on the, the point of regulation though, I think it's worth also noting 
that the major platforms are a very powerful lobby group and they spend a lot of time and money lobbying at the EU uh, level. There was a report that came out last week that says the technology sector has now overtaken the financial services and the pharmaceutical industry as one of the biggest lobbyists at the EU. So there is a lot, you know, the code of practice itself might be quite a small um, a small piece of work, but it's part of a much, much bigger debate about the regulation of technology. And we can expect there will be huge pushback to that uh, from the industry. Yeah, a lot's going to change in the coming years with the the the, the EU digital uh, project and all the changes that are, are coming. We're coming into the digital decade, decade as it's being called. So these are all questions that are going to have to be looked at in, in more detail. Just to, to go back, you, you mentioned about this co-regulatory instrument that there, there may be some kind of sanctions for for platforms that are not following the code could you give any examples do we know yet what what these sanctions might look like no i haven't i would assume that it would rest on uh, things like fines in the same way you have fines for breaches of data protection and uh, things like that but i haven't heard a, a concrete plan for what form that would take yeah, and about I mean, are the EU able to do this? As you say, it's it's a it's a balancing act as well between free speech and and regulation. And um, so, what does this code mean for for me, for the average citizen? How, how will how will it affect the average citizen directly? Well, as I said, one of the the code did achieve some things. So, prior to the code, I would say that. Some of these things were probably going to happen anyway, not just because of the European code, but because of pressure that was coming in the US and elsewhere. But for example, like political advertising, previously there was just no information about what was happening there at all. Now you can, people might be familiar with those little icons you see at the side of an advert, you can find out, why was I shown this? Why was I targeted? So there has been an increase in uh, transparency. Uh, also with the content labels that may be trying to help you um, find content. If people have become more familiar with uh, fact-checking, a lot of fact-checking is funded by uh, Facebook, for example, so they're putting more uh, money into it. So there are those um, maybe smaller things like that. It does have an impact. I would say that beyond the code, those bigger issues about the regulation of online technology have an impact on all of us. There there's an unfortunate thing is that they're quite complex debates and yet they have a direct impact on the future of the digital world that all of us are going to have to live in. So we should all have a say in how online spaces or what kind of online world we want to live in, but the, the debates about it tend to be uh, quite obscure. Yeah, and I mean, is there anything we should do, I mean, when using these platforms to, to I suppose, and be aware of disinformation or know how to spot it? Uh, or, you know, should we be more wary? How can we become more information literate? Well, there's some excellent resources on the, the Media Literacy Ireland website. It ran a campaign during the, the summer called Be Media Smart. And it has, uh, that was in particularly in relation to COVID-19 and vaccines, but the, the tips and advice apply across the board, which is really to just be aware of where your information is coming from. You know, who is putting forward claims? If you're in doubt about something, check another source. You know, if, um, if somebody is making some major claim, it should be reported by uh, other sources. And those are, I think, general tips that apply in life anyway. They're not limited to um, online 
disinformation. I think where it becomes trickier with disinformation and what's sometimes called fake news is that people often have in mind outrageous examples that are really obviously false. But there are so many gray areas where it's really a matter of interpretation or take COVID and vaccines, for example, at the beginning of the crisis, scientists were really uncertain because it was a new virus that had to be researched. So there was a lot of debate and dispute amongst uh, scientists themselves. So things that were considered disinformation a year ago are no longer considered uh, disinformation. And we have to keep that in mind as well before we, uh, when we talk about acting on disinformation, we have to realize that there are serious freedom of expression concerns there and that there are an awful lot of gray areas that you can't just easily regulate for. I think anything to do with science, you know, our understanding of anything, whether it be vaccines, a virus or anything else, can constantly be changing when, when new information comes to light. Um, so I'd like to, and I will also include those links uh, that you mentioned uh, for those tips at the bottom of this interview. So anyone who's watching this, for example, on YouTube or Facebook can see those links um, below the video. I want to finish up um, by just asking you, what would the expected benefits of this code be, either in its current form or in, in, in the new form, in terms of protecting democracy? Um, in the European Union at a, at a personal, local, national and, and right up to EU level? One of the biggest challenges with disinformation, which we know is, is a threat to democracy, and we, we say that it's harmful, but we don't actually understand the mechanics of how, you know, in what circumstances are people influenced by disinformation? So we have a lot of anecdotes about the volume of disinformation that's out there, but not a very good understanding of how it impacts people and why. And one of the things the code of practice was expected to do was to get the platforms to share more data with researchers so they could actually understand what's happening. Or take, for example, if you show somebody a fact check or a correction or one of those labels that says this information is false, what happens next? Do people ignore it? Do they actually change their behavior as a result? We don't know any of that. So one thing that has to happen, I think, with the revised code is that the platforms must be compelled to share more information so that we properly understand the problem. Because it could be that we're putting lots of resources and energy into things that aren't going to be effective at all or worrying about things we shouldn't be worrying about when there's something else um, at stake. So I think that is the, the key issue. And I heard a kind of a, a parable that described it as, imagine if the, the tobacco companies owned all the data on the dangers of smoking and refused to share it with scientists. So at the moment, we're in this slightly absurd situation where everybody says disinformation is this huge crisis for democracy in Europe and elsewhere, but we don't have the right data and information to actually understand whether that's really true or in what ways. So I think that's what, what has to be addressed. So getting our hands on that data seems to be to be key. And, and it's true, I think, that to, to solve any problem, we have to understand the problem first. And that, that, that seems to be, you know, hopefully with this act, that's that's something or with this code, something that that might change that we the likes of your, yourself will be able to get your hands on this data and figure out how this is happening. And we can hopefully find some solutions. So I, I'd like to just finish it by saying uh, thank you to you, Dr. Eileen Collity. That was a, a really interesting 
um, description uh, discussion on the the EU code on disinformation. And um, many thanks uh, for for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you.